Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm happy to welcome April Henry. April Henry has written 26 mysteries, and her slogan is, I kill people, but only on paper. April, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to be here. That's a wonderful slogan. How did you come up with that? I guess I was looking for something that was interesting, but also had kind of an amusing twist. So it was a little bit scary, but not too scary, Um, especially when you're writing for teenagers. You want to attract them, but also not repel their parents. Ah, yes. Good point. But they do say write what you know. Well, you can learn you. I, I think it's write what you're interested in. So I, I like police procedure stuff. I like mysteries. I like figuring things out. So those are all good fits for me. So you've written 26 novels, both for young adults and for adults. How about we start at the beginning? How did you become a writer? Where did you get started? You know, I've been entering in some old journals from the 80s. And I see even back in 85, 87, I was writing down, I want to be a writer. I want to publish a book. And then I want to publish more. And I want to make a full-time living at it. So I think it probably started with just my love of books when I was a kid. And then finally having the courage to realize that it was somebody possible for someone from a little town and grew up poor to be a writer. I always felt like writers were probably people who spoke French at home and went to boarding school and had a horse. I mean, I think I got it mixed up with being rich, but I just thought there wasn't that, that you couldn't grow up in a logging town and be a writer. You had to probably grow up in New York or San Francisco. I just, it didn't seem possible for someone like me. And it wasn't until I was in my thirties that I read a really bad book. And I thought, wow, this book was published by one of the big, biggest publishers and it's terrible. And if that's all you need to do to get published, I can do that. I know I can write a terrible book. So I was kind of oddly motivated to do that. That's an interesting approach, saying, I can do better. Mm -hmm. Or at least equally bad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As Samuel Beckett said, fail again, fail better, right? Did you have a good library where you grew up? Because a lot of writers, they start young and they get into books that way. Yeah, uh, my dad made a habit of taking us to the library every Saturday. And uh, librarian... Uh, there was a rule that if you were a kid, you could only check out six books at any one time. That's the most that you could have out. And it took her about a month. And she said, well, obviously that rule does not apply to you. And she just let me check out as much as I wanted to. It was an old Carnegie library. Carnegie funded a lot of libraries around the United States. And um, I don't know that it had the best selection, but I wasn't, I don't think I wasn't you know, uh, sophisticated enough to be picky. And it was just books. And that's all I cared about was that they had tons and tons of books. There was a children's section on the ground floor. And then on the second floor, there was an adult section. And I started following some of my authors that I read um, from the elementary and to the adult end, which could be quite different. I mean, like Robert Heinlein wrote juvenile fiction about boys with slide rules in space. And then if you walked up the stairs, it would be like stranger in a strange land. It was, uh, it was kind of eye opening really, but, um, it was just, uh, my parents were big readers. 
there might be like, I can remember uh, kind of fighting my mom for who was going to read The Godfather because he had a copy at home and, and we were both reading it. <laughs> so you write mysteries and you talk about reading science fiction. Do you like all different genres or do you want to write science fiction? Um, I don't know that I would write science fiction uh, or fantasy, um, but I would maybe I might write horror. I could kind of see or uh, post-apocalyptic books. Those those all have something in common with um, with mysteries. But those are probably the two that I've thought the most seriously about in terms of if I was going to branch out. The nice thing about mysteries, it's a very uh, wide pool that can take in um, many different kinds of fish. You could write a romantic, you could write a cozy, you could write something that was really humorous and kind of slapstick. You could write something that was super gritty and they could all be labeled a mystery. You could write a police procedure. So there's there's a lot of different genres that could be folded into that. I know people who've written science fiction mysteries. I'm not sure I've read a fantasy mystery, but there probably are some. The, the thing about mysteries is in almost every case, they end at the end. They're not the first third of a trilogy or the first of 19 volumes in a series. Well, while you have a character that continues through a series, you have closed-ended stories. Well, I believe even if you were writing like a fantasy trilogy, you also need to end it with a satisfying ending on the first book. You can't be just you can't just type to be continued, you know, and book two is not going to come out for another year. I remember reading a fantasy um, years ago where I had really enjoyed this other series he had and I was reading the first book had just come out and I was like so excited to see how it was all going to wrap up and there were so many mysteries and the it ended with the characters riding through a mirror on horseback. And I thought, wait, nothing has been resolved. And now I will not know the answer for another year, at least. And, you know, if it was a trilogy, it might be not for another two or three years. And I just remember being annoyed. So I feel like even if you write um, a trilogy, that the, each book should have a, some uh, some answer in it, not maybe the entire answer, but should have resolution in it. So you descend from a long line of criminals and also George Washington. Yes. Well, George Washington and I share a common ancestor. So we are what they call a once removed type relative. So he's like my eighth cousin once removed. So we descend from the same set of parents. But way back. Way, way back. And then, yeah. Um, so my, about 10 years ago, I was on a huge deadline and I shouldn't have been doing anything but work. And I just, you know, you all of a sudden you start doing things you're not supposed to do. And my grandmother was named Effie Satterwhite. And I wondered what would happen if I typed your name into the Google search bar. And then this whole Arkansas State Supreme Court decision from 1907 popped up. And at first, I just thought the person in it was someone who shared the same name as my grandma. But by the time I was done reading it, I knew it was my grandma. And I understood that when she was alive, she was a very crabby, bitter, mean woman. And what had happened was when she was 18, um, her brother had caught her and her boyfriend kissing in a very, quote, unbecoming position. I don't know what they were doing, but it sounds like more than kissing. Yeah. It sounds like more than kissing. So the boyfriend was told to get lost and he said, no, I want to marry Miss Effie. So he was allowed to continue to date her. 
And then one night he brought her home from a date and he went to kiss her. She pushed him away. And then they talked for a little while and the town clock rang 11. And this time when he went to kiss her, she didn't push him away. And in her court testimony later, she said that after he left, she heard a sound and she pushed aside the curtain and her father was running down the stairs with a shotgun and he shot the guy and beat him over the head with a rifle butt. And uh, my grandmother was like, uh, had run outside and was screaming and crying and had his head in her lap and was trying to protect him. And her dad actually stood over her and said, it's your fault. You're always hugging and kissing on that boy. And I couldn't, um, I couldn't trust you around him. And he actually appealed his conviction for murder, saying that he shouldn't have to serve any time in prison because he was defending his daughter's virtue. He did not get his conviction overturned, but he only served two years in prison. But it explained so much. It explained why my grandmother didn't get married until she was quite old for the time. She didn't have her first kid until she was 36, which in 1923 would be very old. And um, why she was always such a bitter bitter person. I mean, she lived at home for another 10 years. So, you know, with a family that told her it was her fault that her boyfriend was dead. So that, that to me, and then I thought, wait a minute, I'm a mystery writer and I'm a great granddaughter of a killer. And then my asthma, I started getting curious about other relatives and I asked my mom what her uh, grandpa's name had been. And when I Googled him, he had died in an insane asylum and he'd also been the leader of an arson gang that burnt down things for money. Um, and just delving into his past was super interesting. And then it turns out that my ninth great grandfather was put on trial for pig bewitchment in um, the colony. Sorry, pig bewitchment? Pig bewitchment. You probably didn't know it was a thing. No, I didn't. In 1656... <laughs> He had a neighbor and the neighbor had a pig and it got out of its fenced in area and it ran around and it ate up people's gardens, which was a big deal because in the colonies, the only food you had to eat was what you grew. And if somebody, if a pig ate up a lot of your garden, you might literally starve to death in the winter. So people were very angry and the guy was a quick thinker. And there was a lot of people being accused of witchcraft at that time. And he said that my ninth great grandfather had put a hex on the pig to make it do that. And there was something about how they cut off the tail of the pig and threw it in the fire to see whether this was true. It's all very logical. Yeah. Um, my, luckily, he was found not guilty. Uh, but if you look at, the, I've seen some of the old court records that around the same time, and like they were like sailors who were charged with taking the name of God in vain. And they were cutting, they were cutting their tongues. So uh, he was very lucky that he was found not guilty because they were, it was a pretty brutal time at that time. Wow. You've got lots of material to write about there, don't you? Yeah. Well, just recently on ancestry.com, uh, somebody has DNA matched with, um, couple of my siblings and other people. And I'm pretty certain that there was um, some kind of relationship, uh, probably a rape between my second great grandfather and a slave. I've been, I've just been trying to look at the DNA matches and figure it out with no paper records. I don't know that I can ever that, but it, it seems likely. So it's not somebody I'd ever heard about until maybe 10 years ago, but it's still 
an odd kind of shameful feeling to know that this probably yeah. happened. Yeah. So you write a lot of scary novels, don't you? <laughs> These aren't cozy mysteries. These are a, a lot of things with girls getting in trouble. Yeah. Um, so when I first moved to Portland, in I was still going to college, and uh, somebody broke into my apartment when I was in the shower. And uh, the apartment building was so old that you couldn't even close the bathroom door all the way. It just kind of got stuck at some point, but it didn't matter because I lived by myself. And uh, there was this one night where I had been doing these Jane Fonda exercises. If you're old enough to remember Jane Fonda. Yeah, I remember that. These donkey kicks. And the apartment had a retaining wall behind the back. And it was only about a foot away. So most people didn't bother to put up curtains back there. You know, so I just had a big black pane back there of glass. And I had heard noises back there. I just thought it was raccoons. And then when I was taking the shower, I heard the sound of someone breaking into my kitchen window. And I ended up, um, it was awful. Just you turn off the water and you think, I hope that can't be right. That can't be right. And I'm looking at the door. I can't close, let alone lock. And looking at the window that was painted shut and it was too small to get out of. And I ended up walking out into the hall. Um, I dragged on my wet leotard and went out in the hall. And the only light was behind me from the uh, bathroom. And I said, who's in my kitchen? And he didn't say anything, but I could hear him breathing. And then a little voice in the back of my head said, you're an idiot. You need to get out of here. So I ran out and the police came and he was gone. And uh, it was kind of like, like we were all kind of laughing at some point. And cause my, um, we had been talking and there was a thump from my bedroom and both cops drew their guns and were pointing them down the hallway and out walked my cat. It was like a bad jump scare in a movie. So we were like, haha. And then the cops were like, look around and see if he took anything. And the only thing that was missing were my dish towels. And I thought that was funny. I was like joking, like, why didn't they steal my salts or my pancake turner? And the, the cop looked at me and he goes, ma'am, he was going to tie you up with them. So I've always known that there was some other April that got probably raped and maybe murdered that night, but nothing, nothing bad happened to me, but I think it made it that every time I see a news story about some woman kidnapped from an ATM and thrown into the trunk of her own car, I'll think, what would I do? Would I be smart enough if the escaped prisoner broke into my house, you know, to talk him into not killing me, what would I be able to do that? So I, I actually did not think about that thing. Uh, that event for years, I just sort of shoved it aside. And only recently I've been realizing, wait a minute, I think that's why I write the kind of books that I do because I relate. And then I, um, I started getting curious when I was thinking about it and I went on the cold case for Portland uh, police and they helpfully number all their cold cases with the year. So I looked at 82 and that probably within a month of when that happened to me, there was another Portland state student was murdered in her apartment and they've never solved that. And um, part of me wonders if it was the same person, but it could just be a coincidence too. I don't know. I've asked for my police records, but they haven't come yet. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're gonna talk about how you use Scrivener and we're gonna talk more about your books.
Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. Okay, April, you've got a book coming out very, very soon called Two Truths and a Lie, Trapped in an Old Motel with a Murderer. That sounds a lot like what you were just telling us before the break. Yeah, in uh, 2019, I was at a literacy festival in Nebraska. Wait, this is a true story here? It started with a true story. Okay, So go ahead. The, um, I gave my keynote speech, and then I went to sign books, and there was no one in the room. And I, the hotel had been added on to, and the, nothing made sense in it, so I thought I had made a wrong turn. But it turned out that a blizzard was blowing in, and most of the attendees were from Nebraska, and they were trying to scramble out of there as fast as possible before this blizzard blew across the plains. So uh, the only people I ended up being left in this creepy old sprawling motel were the people who were from out of state. And there was actually a lady there from Ireland and uh, they only served um, continental breakfast, but we were going to probably be there for three or four days. And it was just the strangest, creepiest place. And I thought I have to set a book here with a group of people, a dwindling group of people who are trapped by a blizzard. So, um, so I guess it was worth it. Was it called the Overlook Motel by any chance? <laughs> no, what was it called? It was actually a Ramada Inn. <laughs> ah, okay. That sounds banal. Yeah. It was a, they had taken over an existing motel. It was very strange. It had an inside tiki bar complete with a roof made out of palm fronds. Um, in Nebraska. In Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the Yelp reviews said, come for the Mai Tai, stay for the smell of chlorine because it overlooked the pool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've been using Scrivener for a long time, haven't you? I have been using Scrivener since probably 2008. Uh, I, I like new technology and I, th and I hate Word, so it was a good combination. <laughs> Yeah, Scrivener came out in early 2007, so you're pretty early in the in the lifespan there. Have you used it for all your novels? When did you, when was your first published book? Oh, I can't have been because I I sold my first book in 97. Oh, okay. So, um no, but I've used it ever since. Once I started using it, I thought I am not going back. So, how do you use Scrivener? Well, um I'll start out with the corkboard function. And I will write little, those imaginary three by five cards and start putting down plot uh, points and ideas for scenes and then rearrange them. I will, um, and then I'll start working on an outline uh, from that. And then I will start maybe writing longer pieces 
and start trying to fit them all together. I, there's so many parts of it that I use. I, I use the color coding for different characters so I can quickly at a glance, see if, you know, one character has disappeared for a long stretch. If I'm using multiple points of view, I labeled my three by five cards as to whether they're done or not. I use the note function a ton. I'm always sticking photos over in there so that I can uh, describe things the same or describe them accurately. If I just, uh, was just uh, taking some screen caps of a cougar um, so that I'll put those in the notes section. And then when I write the section about the cougar cache, then I can write that accurately uh, and have something. Cougar, this is the animal or the car? Oh, it's definitely the animal. We've had, okay. there's been um, some cougar fatalities in the Pacific Northwest. And so did you take photos of this Ramada Inn in Nebraska for I the latest novel? I took photos, and then I went online just to find more photos. of. Uh, I ended up renaming the real thing was called the elephant's eye, and I called it the tiger's tail in the book. But um, So I will, like if I had a character who's drinking out of an uh, heirloom teacup, then I'll have that photo off in in my notes, and that way when another character drinks out of it, you know, be the consistently described. Yeah. It, it sounds from what you said that you don't write from beginning to end, that you work in a nonlinear fashion. Well, if I know where I'm going, I don't necessarily need to write from beginning to end, but I, I actually do write from beginning to end. But if I'm stuck, I'll give myself, quote, permission to write out of order if I know another scene. Um, uh, there's a a writing instructor who calls them candy bar scenes. So sometimes I'll treat myself to the candy bar scene that I know is going to be really good and I'll work on that. But I'm more or less right linear oh, in a linear fashion. I can't even say that word with the L-Y on the end. Linearly, yeah, it's not a good word. But see, one of the great things about Scribner is you can write that candy bar scene and stick it low down in the binder until you need it. Unlike in let's not mention the other big word processor where you'd have to scroll forever to get to it. Also, I feel like that thing that who shall not be named, like all of a sudden I'll be writing it and we'll be like, you're creating a table. Here's the table. And I'm like, no, no, it's not a table. Stop that. And then I have to try and unwind it. I know technology is frustrating, isn't it? So you've co-authored a series of books with Lise Wheel. How does that work? Well, there's different ways to collaborate. I've worked with, an, with another author on something where we would just trade chapters back and forth. Um, Lise, it would be more like we would just talk about the broad overview of uh, what her vision was for the book. And then we would talk about things that had happened in her life that could be used in the book. But then I would write the first draft of the chapters and then she would look them over and make corrections. Like she's a lawyer. So like I might, you know, maybe I had gotten it wrong as to how it would work in the grand jury room and she would fix that for me. So it was a different kind of collaboration than with someone who is a full-time writer because she is a full-time, I mean, she's a lawyer and a commentator on TV. Right. And you've also, since you've written for teens and adults, how do you make the switch from one to another? Because it's, it's language, it's situations, there's there, there are a lot of differences, though, in my experience, talking with young adult authors on this podcast, they're getting closer together, aren't they? I don't actually know that there's that much difference. For one thing, Lisa and I wrote for Thomas Nelson, which is now a um, 
uh, an affiliate or a subsidiary of HarperCollins. But Thomas Nelson wanted everything to be pretty clean. Mm. Like they have big debates about whether you could say somebody had a butt, yeah. you know, maybe Ooh. it should be a derriere okay. or something. Um, so that kind of cleanliness thing, uh, I, you can write however you want to for teens. Now, whether someone is going to buy it might be a different matter. You know, I could have super graphic sex scenes and a cannibal, but would somebody buy that as a book to, to give to teenagers? You know, would and, the publisher? And would the school librarians want to have that kind of book as well? That is very much an issue right now, as you probably see in the States. There's a lot of, I think right now they're just almost like, well, I shouldn't, I want to wander off topic, so I'll leave that alone. But um, I do not write any, my vocabulary is exactly the same. Uh, the characters, you have to have your primary characters be teenagers, and I usually make mine be. 15 or 16 so that they have some driving experience because often there's going to be a time where they're going to need to drive someplace. Ah, okay. And, um, I have made the choice that my characters are not sexually active and cause I am not, I mean, if you're writing a book about somebody who maybe they're an abusive dating relationship, well, you might need to have, more content than I need to have. I just want to have an exciting book that gets teenagers. A lot of them are not into reading. I want them to think the book is fun and interesting. So I'll just jam in a bunch of like super exciting moments like the cougar or like, um, how can you make snowshoes out of tree branches or how, what would happen if you fell into a tree well and you were smothering just, I have exciting things, but I don't, <laughs> I don't have uh, and I don't, use swears it kind of feels like with swears right now or um kind of like you know if you're you can have a pg-13 movie with like i believe one f word but once you get into two it's into our territory so um i kind of i just don't there's a, everybody knows what swear words are yeah and, and teenagers use them all the time if it, it, it's the same with violence. You don't have to describe it. People are better at filling in the blank than you are at writing it or, or a scary thing. In Stranger Things, the monster was way scarier when I didn't see it than when I could see it. So I kind of tend to leave things up to readers' imaginations and depending on their sophistication or what they've been exposed to, maybe they even imagine something more graphic than what I was thinking. But I, I don't really find that I write that any differently other than um, characters being younger. And the books are a little shorter. There's usually one less subplot. But other than that, I don't, I don't really find that I'm writing any differently. And you go to schools a lot and you meet with a lot of your readers. And how do they, how do they react to this? Do they see themselves in your books? Yes, um, uh, I wasn't doing very many school visits. So I've started up again and kids are, um, they're very honest with you. They will tell you secrets about themselves that an adult never would. And you'll also know whether they're interested. Adults will at least try to look interested. Kids don't feign interest. So um, it's fun to be around them because they have so much energy and they want to talk to you and they want to tell you about things that have happened to them. And sometimes you hear awful stories of things that have happened to them. But um, I'm really looking forward to getting back out on the road next month to see teen readers. You seem to do a lot of research for your novels. And on your website, you say, I know how to get out of duct tape, zip ties, rope and handcuffs. 
And there are photos of you in a firing range and doing all sorts of things. You also do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You, you seem to be kind of living the life of a, I'm not going to say detective, but someone who is solving things. Well, I don't like things to be inaccurate. And jiu-jitsu like, gives me an understanding of what just physicality and like a real fight is like. Uh, I don't like reading something where I know that they just took it from what they saw on a TV show. And a lot of things you see on TV shows aren't accurate. They'll show somebody picking a lock with a single paperclip or a bobby pin, and it doesn't work like that. So it bothers me that they didn't go the extra mile. And it's not hard anymore with the Internet. You should be able to find somebody that can explain how something works to you, even if you don't want to do it yourself. And there are a number of books for mystery writers about things like that, particularly about forensics. So you can, I'm sure you have a small library of these things when you need to look up what's the name of the chemical that they spray on the fingerprints to get them to show up with the ultraviolet light, something like that. Yeah, there's, there, um, there are a lot of books, a lot of retired cops or retired forensics people have written books. Um, and there's web, there's a web group called Crime Scene Writers that's on Google Groups. And there's a lot of retired cops on there that are willing to share their experience and their expertise. Before we go, I always like to ask my guests, is there a book you can recommend to our listeners that you've read recently that you've really enjoyed? You know, it's a couple of years old, but there was a book by Jen Phillips called Fierce Kingdom, and I loved that book. I even photocopied pages of it so I could figure out how she did it. And one of the things that was interesting was she had a, a narrator that did some things that were not 100% um, perfect. They were, they were human and flawed, and you still liked the character. So Fierce Kingdom by Jen Phillips. Okay, April Henry, thank you very much. Your next book, Two Truths and a Lie, is out this month. Thank you. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener.